everybody, Jimmy Smith. On today's Unlocking the Cage podcast, I go over the latest news surrounding the fallout between the WWE, Sasha Banks, and Naomi. I also discuss UFC Vegas 55 and judging in MMA with the UFC's own Laura Sanko and break down the NBA playoffs with Sirius XM NBA Radio's Amin Al-Hassan and do the Heat have a chance. Michael Cole made an, ex- uh, an announcement at SmackDown for the repercussions of Banks versus Naomi as they were uh, for, for walking out on Raw last week. And then Pat McAfee did the same thing. So let me, let me fill you guys in before we get to that audio and you hear everything. As you heard from the audio, I was working the Monday Night Raw when this happened. We announced the main event. A lot of people online. <laughs> it's kind of funny to me. Uh... I said, oh, the, the WWE changes main events all the time. You get a version of the main event once it's announced on television. We are on TV. Here is the graphic. Here is the main event. You get a version of that main event to go, ah, ah, no, never mind. It's not going to happen for no reason. Should have been a tip off to some people. This was something a little weird. So... As I said, it was announced to us a couple minutes after we were on air, which they don't do typically unless it's a real problem. Somebody pulls something backstage. There's some kind of weird injury. Uh, okay, that happens. This was bizarre. So uh, the W released a statement that they laid down their titles and walked out of the building. Uh, did not take. Did not want to take part in the six-woman tag team match, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, featuring... It was Nikki A.S.H. and Dewdrop and the Tag Team Champions and uh, Asuka and Becky Lynch. Am I getting everybody? I think that was everybody that was, that was listening to that match. So they walked out. We were scrambling all night because all the graphics still said, uh, you know, six one tag. So we had to change everything. Hey, uh, and everything's numbered, by the way. That, this is standard format stuff where, where the whole show is numbered one to whatever. And each number corresponds to a different element in the show. Somebody's walkout, a graphic, uh, whatever. So when it says, like, number 72, six-woman tag, all right, forget that. It's going to be this. It's going to look like that. Da-da-da. We're throwing to that right now. That was happening all night because of these changes. So anyway, the, the WWE released a statement about it, and this happened on air. This is Michael Cole from SmackDown last Friday. Here it is. Sasha Banks and Naomi let us all down. The WWE Women's Tag Team Champions walked off the show and walked out of the building during Monday Night Raw. Sasha and Naomi took the Tag Team Championships into the office of our Head of Talent Relations, left them there, and then promptly walked out of the arena. Their actions disappointed millions of WWE fans and their fellow superstars. So because of what Sasha and Naomi did this past Monday night, they have been suspended indefinitely. And we will have a future tournament to crown the new WWE Women's Tag Team Champions. Before I get into the nuts and bolts of that announcement, remember I do not work SmackDown. I work Raw. Uh, KOB, as a fan, as a fan, which you are, you're a pro wrestling fan, what do you think of that announcement? I'm really curious. I'm really curious. When I'm I heard that from the other side of the fence, yeah. When I heard that beginning part of like let everyone Sasha Banks and Naomi let everyone yeah. down, I'm like, dude, 
WWE is going hard in the paint right now at this. Not playing around, right? No. Yeah. No. So, like, when I heard that, I'm like, they are being especially, like, it's weird. Back in the day, it was just, this type of thing might happen, but you wouldn't know. They just You just didn't see someone for, for months on end. You're like, oh, I guess maybe they're in trouble for something. Like, with the Ultimate Warrior, when the Ultimate Warrior pulled this, Ultimate Warrior was right. gone. There was no formal announcement. There was no anything. It was just, he was gone for months. And we're like, oh, what happened to the Warrior? With this, because of the way you know social media and the way the world is, like they came right. hard. They came hard with a statement where you could see right away they were like, "Oh, they say they had this problems." This is not a joke. Yes. Yeah, this is not a joke. They say they had problems, despite the fact that they've worked with these people over. It's like, wow, it wasn't vague. Really, it wasn't. Yeah, putting, they left for some reason. Yes, yes. They are putting out a very particular message, and they are sticking hard to that message about the way this works. Folks, once again, I will say it on the show. I do not kayfabe on the show. Okay, I can talk about pro wrestling and, you know, events and stuff like that. Uh, this is public. It's a public thing that I'm allowed to talk about. Uh, I would not sit here and work you guys. That's not what I do. This is not a wrestling show. So, this is kind of like... The reason, and I've heard this a lot. Oh, the WWE, as you said, in the past would just get rid of somebody and you wouldn't hear anything. What I the, the rumor I have heard is in the days of social media where the, the, the performers themselves can spin their own narrative. Nowadays, if the ultimate word got cut, and p- people know the story at SummerSlam or end of the back and was immediately fired by Vince McMahon because he had made all his demands that I don't know who knows the story, watch the dark side of the ring. Okay. But Ultimate Warrior would have picked up his phone. And recorded something on Instagram and said, F Vince McMahon, blah, 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 whatever. The superstars themselves are able to get their own story out and get their own narrative out in the public in ways they couldn't 20, 10, 15 years ago. So what it feels like the WWE is doing, and I don't know, they haven't discussed it with me, is they're getting ahead of the ability of, 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 Sasha Banks and Naomi to put out their own narrative, right? If you don't say why, they'll say why. And it'll paint them in a different light than the W. The, you know, the W wants their perspective out there. KOB, does that make sense? Why didn't they just drop? Well, they're going to come out and say something. So W wanted to get ahead of it and did it first. Make sense? That's oh, what no, it seems like to me. It 100% it makes sense. Because if yeah. I said it, like, that's the difference. Like, I get we're in a very different world than back when different I was watching world, wrestling yeah. in, the, in the 90s. Like, we didn't, you know, you didn't know about contracts. You didn't know someone might be leaving. You kind of guessed a little bit. Like, oh, you know, it looks like we're seeing some promos that are leading up to someone. But we didn't have that kind of internet access that everyone has today. So, yeah, yeah with physical social media. dirt sheets. Yeah, you had yeah. to subscribe, yeah. And you know what? Here's the thing. Podcasts out there, too. These people are free yep. to jump on and go do whatever they want to do and get their story out there first. So, yeah, I know. I totally get the WWE swinging away yes. right off the bat. Yeah. Right off the bat, they were swinging away. Also, I'm really curious about this because I'm on the broadcaster side of it. Where do you think what Michael Cole read came from as a fan? Oh, that seemed like a very prepared statement that he was given to read. <laughs> What I don't get at all is the heat that my broadcast partner, Corey Graves, because he read a similar statement. He actually toned it down a little bit because they gave us, you know, obviously, we, you know, they, they, they gave him something to read and much like Michael Cole got. He toned it down a little bit. But, guys, it, Michael Cole and Corey Graves aren't making this stuff up. 
people are getting mad at them like they're freestyling this stuff. They're not. They're broadcasters. If Vincent said, here, read this, I would have done exactly what Michael Cole did. Well, they, Vince could have said, hey, Jimmy, why aren't you reading that? And I, okay. Sasha Banks and Naomi let us all down. Da, da, da. I would have read the same thing. Yes. You know, but it, it's this weird thing where, where like, on, in my sense from Monday Night Raw, Corey Graves is getting all this shit. Corey Graves didn't make up that statement. He's a broadcaster and he was told to read it and he read it. So I understand maybe the ire of the fans, but the misdirection of that ire is weird. KOB, you as a fan get Michael Cole was reading a statement that was part of what he had to read. And so people getting upset at Michael Cole or me or Corey Graves, you're just getting mad at the wrong people. I don't get that. Does that make sense, KOB? Because I'm seeing like Graves get all this crap. And I'm like, dude, Graves is. Yeah, he was told I to think, say what he said. And he said it like, for I don't some know reason. I, I think they just seem to think that like you guys can tell Vince. No, I'm not reading that. Like, right. no, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> that is not how it works, man. Like, do I, if you think it is, I mean, go ahead, try it at your job. Whatever it is that you do, tell me like, your boss tells you to do tell this. Tell your boss you go, no. Right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe they'll listen. Maybe they won't. Chances are, probably not going to listen, and you're going to be in a lot of trouble, if not fired. So, exactly. It's exactly. It's, it's hilarious to me. Anyway, so this is what uh, Pat McAfee had to say, and this is Pat McAfee on the Pat McAfee show about the announcement. The Sasha Naomi thing, that was my first time hearing what Cole was saying live there. I have no idea what to think there. Yeah, what's going on? I have no clue. This is a very fascinating thing. Yeah, need Sasha. She's superstar. Yeah, yeah. talent. They were our champions. Yeah. What? Ha- I honestly have no idea what to believe in this whole thing. They keep me out of the loop with everything. Mm-hmm. I have no fucking idea. While Cole was doing his thing, I was very fascinated. Yeah. What is <laughs> what? going Say on? What? what is going on right now? I have no idea. I wish I had more answers for people. A couple people asked me during my chat with Pat on Saturday, what's going on? It's like, I feel like you know more than I do. Literally, as that was happening, I'm like, oh, God damn. Suspended indefinitely. Hopefully, we get Whoa. some sort of resolution. Yeah, we need here. it. Yeah. I know. Uh, he's not on Raw. Remember this. He's on SmackDown. He wasn't there when all this happened. I was. I was on air. So I didn't know until it was over with what was happening. I had no idea. Um, so he's even he's even further removed than I am from it. When I walked in the back to leave, you know, people were going like, you know, oh, do you know what's going on? And da 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 da. I said, what? And I got shown this statement and da da da. But I was there when it happened. Pat wasn't. Pat works a different show, different day, different everything. So he has no idea. I'm not surprised at all by the stance of the WWE. They almost don't have a choice. Well, like, once they, KB, the, the, the way you said it, they, they kind of went out guns blazing. They got to do something. You don't release a statement saying they dropped their titles, they let us all down, da 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 da. They were unprofessional. I'm, I'm summarizing, obviously, but it was like, you know, we expect our talent to, to perform their contractual obligations. You don't make a statement like that and not punish the people. It's just. It's absurd. Like, once they did that, the consequences are there. So, KOB, as a fan, are you surprised at all? No, not really. No. Not at all. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's the way things go. I wasn't at all. Yeah, it's pretty much how I suspected it to go. 
Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. Laura Sanko here to talk all about open scoring, MMA, uh, what's going on in the UFC? So we got a whole list. We're all we're ready to go on every uncomfortable topic you can possibly think of. How you doing, Laura? I've missed you. I'm doing great. I miss you too. We haven't chatted in a while, but yeah, doing well. Busy as ever, same as you. You're doing big things. Like you're like I'm locking the cage. That's such a that's such a step down. Ugh. Oh, like, stop. I, that's I heard that's what Kelly had to basically bag you <laughs> on the show. She said, "Well, I've got this and then this. I have five minutes in between these two things. That's it." So, I got, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, don't even deny it. That's cool. It's all right. Anyway, uh, so let's start off with, um, first off, what are you doing uh, still sparring at this point when you're on television all the time? I still grapple. I don't kickbox anymore because I cannot have my face rearranged. Still not a deal for you? It's still not no. a deal So I hadn't, I hadn't been to sparring in, in a while. I'll pop into pro class I mean, once in a blue moon, but a really good friend of mine, and he's the guy that you see me probably posting the most grappling uh, pictures with. He's He runs the gym. He's a black belt. So he's the one who has the most flex- flexible schedule. So he and I get together and, and roll or whatever. He has not fought in 14 years. He did fight MMA, but he hasn't fought in 14 years. And he is going to have another fight. So uh, he was like, "I will you do class with me? And long story endless, I hopped into class, got a little excited. There's a small guy at our gym uh, who walks at like 125. He's my height. And we just had a really good round. And I, 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 it was, it was a very good round. It's not like I lost. I just look like I lost. (laughs) It's just my, my, my face looks like I lost. That's all. So speaking of judging, isn't that a great segue? Like a judge probably would have like given him the round because like reading your face. So, right. There you go. Damage. So last Saturday's fight. Of course, um, Holly Holm, Caitlin Vieira, a lot of controversy stemming from that fight. What are your thoughts overall? Not about the scoring necessarily, the fight itself. Was it what you expected? Was it what you didn't expect? I thought it was a very typically Holly Holm fight. What did you think? Yeah, exactly that. I, th- I it was It was pretty much what I expected. I think maybe I had hoped that Caitlin would have been maybe more prepared for Holly's um, ability to cage grapple. She's so good there, and she's she and her team are, have always been very good strategists in that way. Um, so no, it was, it was sort of along the lines of, of what I was expecting. And, you know, Holly has made a good career out of being an excellent counterfighter on the feet, you know, sort of point fighting at distance. And then if she's not at distance, she's right in your face and she's grabbing a hold of you and using one of her best assets, which is her physical strength. I was asked um, for my ESPN gig last week uh, about the legacy of Holly Holmes. And I said, always good, only great once. And they, they, you know, they seemed kind of shocked. They kind of expected, oh, yeah, great. And I said, it's true. I go, she never had the step-down performance where she didn't show up for somebody. But when it came to, man, I really need to hit the gas and, and kind of get over that hump, she only did it one time. Uh, I guess Ronda Rousey, and, and we can talk all day about Ronda Rousey and how prepared she was and all that stuff. But that idea of, I, I've said this about Uriah Faber. If Uriah Faber was an eight, he never beat a nine, but he never lost to a seven. 
He was always kind of right in the middle. Is her strength, in a sense, her weakness? In that she's always right at eight. She never got above the Amanda Nunez's of the world, the Chris Cyborg's of the world, but she never lost to anybody she wasn't supposed to lose to until last Saturday. Is that a fair criticism or assessment? I think it's fair because I think that that, you know, when you look at her career, I think that that is a, that is certainly a fair way to look at it. You know, I think that one thing that we should think about is were Holly's best athletic years spent in boxing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a case for that. And, and so I, her legacy in MMA is certainly not her legacy in totality because her legacy in totality is spectacular. What she achieved in boxing, she's now in the boxing hall of fame, one of very few women to achieve that. And so to say legacy, I, I, it's like, I want to put the boxing in there too, because that's where right. you really see her head and shoulders above many other people. And she definitely had moments of greatness in the UFC and, and the moment of greatness in the UFC. But to your point, um, it's not as though she held the title for you know a, a long period of time, right. but man, I don't think people give enough credit for hard, how hard it is to be an eight and never lose to a seven. I'm not saying that that's uh, the the pinnacle of greatness, but it's something. <laughs> One of the things about, yeah, yeah, consistency is certainly underrated. One of the things about the weight class she was in and the time she was in is there was no room to hang out in the middle. Like, you know, it was either yeah. you were fighting the champs or you weren't there at all, right? So so is that part of it, too, that she was just thrown in there against the best of the best. All, she didn't get that three or four in between like a Uriah Faber, like Samu, who Jim Miller had a good career, had winning streaks, but never beat great guys. Well, he didn't have to fight great guys every time. Holly did. Is that fair to look at? Absolutely. I think she entered the UFC in 2015, if I remember correctly, and I, it yeah. was like two fights later that she was fighting – for the title. And yeah, the, the, the division was the top of the division. And it, interestingly enough, at that time, it's not that the division was weak. It's just that the division was, uh, it, it was small, but strong as, as, as strange as that sounds. Now yeah. I would say the division is not as strong as it has been or as it was when she entered the Bantamweight division. So the fact that she entered it at its peak and was able to establish herself in those top five and stay there for seven years. And I know she had, you know, the streak where she lost several fights in a row, but again, there's something to be said for, for clawing back from a, a period of time like that. And she's never been, she's never been completely outclassed by someone in a fight that I, that is coming to mind. You might be able to correct me because your memory is better than mine, but um I thought of the last Nunez, the Nunez fight. I thought she got out, but that was about as only one she got laid yes. out. And went, man, that was right. bad. The yep. rest she was right there with him. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. Um, Amanda so, Nunez gonna Amanda Nunez. You know, gonna, yeah, if you're gonna get outclassed by somebody, it's a prime Amanda Nunez. So speaking to Laura Sanko, UFC broadcaster extraordinaire. So now that we've gone over kind of the nuts and bolts of Holly Holm, where is the controversy in this fight coming from to you as an observer? 100% of the controversy is, is coming from the public, the fighters, the coaches, and the broadcasters not understanding what the judges are judging. And we can debate all day long if we think that they are judging the right things, but I'm telling you that we don't understand, and I'm including myself in that because I'm still in the process of deep diving, and I mean like ridiculously deep diving into this topic. I had 
been familiarized with the rules and the criteria and the order in which uh, you place them, the emphasis in which you place certain things, all that. It's not like I had never gone down this road, but this fight really forced me to really dig down the rabbit hole. And I spent an hour on the phone with John McCarthy. I spent an hour on the phone with Sean Sheehan. I spent 45 minutes on the phone with Mark Goddard. I have I had already done his classes. And I'm telling you, people don't know what the judges are looking at. Like it or not, they don't know. And it's wild to me because I'm telling you, like, the to me, the fact that the fighters and the coaches don't know is probably the, and, and the broadcasters, is, is probably the biggest thing because that's who collectively influences the culture of the fans. It's not really the fans' jobs to know the, the, the intricate details of the rules. They pick up what they hear us say on television and they pick up the, maybe they go to a gym and they visit and, you know, they're doing uh, shadow boxing rounds. How often have you heard whoever's coaching the session yell out in the shadow boxing round, steal the round, steal the round, sprawl, sprawl. You know, like that idea of, yes. of and that's just one example. That's just one tiny example. And there are loads of them. There's a 30 second timer at the end for a reason. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Like th this, there are so many misconceptions about what judges are judging. And then that in turn, because the fighters and the coaches and the broadcasters are seen as the true experts, well, the judges must be total idiots then. And I'm not here to say that there aren't judges that have been massively wrong. I can point to several rounds that are just egregiously, egregiously wrong, no matter how you look at the scoring criteria, just plain wrong. But last Saturday was not one of them at all. In a five-round fight with three judges, you have the potential for 15 scores. In that fight, 14 of the 15 scores matched. That is a very successfully judged fight. And what's crazy is that in talking with Sean, Mark, and Big John, all three of them said, here's the problem. Scoring that fight, because it all hinges on the third round, scoring that fight for Holly is not incorrect. Scoring that fight for Ketlin is not incorrect. Deal with it. Here's a question I have that's very broad, not about any specific judging criteria or anything like that. Of course, speaking to Lord Sanko, UFC broadcaster extraordinaire. Is there a problem if there is a wide gulf between what a fan thinks and what a judge thinks? When I watch football, you don't have to be an expert to see a touchdown. I don't need a level of expert. I need one to call a play. I need one to call a right defense. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts of when a touchdown is, if I have to need, if I need a degree in 10 years of experience to know what a touchdown looks like, the gulf between the fans and the judges shouldn't exist to this degree. Obviously, they're experts. They shouldn't see, or yeah, they know when you don't. Well, if I don't know what I'm looking at, I'm not going to be a fan very long. There shouldn't be a gigantic gulf between what a judge considers good and what a fan considers good. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with that in spirit. And I think that what we're now discussing is could changes be made? And I certainly think that there is always opportunity to look at better ways to do things, especially when you're talking about a sport that is incredibly young, incredibly young. And so I definitely am not a fan of like, well, this is how it is. So this is how it should always be. Right. I do think that there should be continuous. No, let's look at that. Like, 
the biggest thing to me in that fight is, and and this is where the conversation gets really messed up on Twitter. You know, there there is, my point was just, people don't know what the judges are looking at. I'm not saying that what the judges are looking at is ultimately how I would want a judge to be, or how I would want a fight to be judged. Because to me, when you say effective grappling, to me, part of effective grappling is controlling someone. But that's my mentality as someone who grapples, as, as a fighter. And in talking to these experts, again, the word that they use is damage, damage, damage. Grappling is effective when you are going for submissions. Are you trying to end the fight is what is the mindset and the spirit behind how they look at everything. Who is trying to end the fight? Who is closest to ending the fight? Who is doing the most damage, therefore closest to ending the fight? Which is why you see things like the Rob Font Cheeto Vera deal, right? Where Cheeto's getting pretty outclassed on the feet continuously. And then at the very end of the round, Cracks him, knocks him down. Cheeto wins the round. His legs became rubber. Yes. Uh, in that instance, I agree with that because although the volume was there for Rob, the fact is that Cheeto was closest to finishing the fight. I guess the debate then becomes, is that how we should look at it? I think it is in that instance, but I do think that some of the ways that, that grappling is looked at and this word control is understood and therefore scored is very interesting. And the other thing is this, like I saw people on Twitter yesterday so confused by octagon control and grappling. So octagon control very rarely <laughs> factors into this. And it's not yes. even called octagon control anymore. It's called fighting right. area control. Yes. And that's the positional thing. You almost never go to that when scoring a fight, except for maybe Carla versus Rose, which I could argue could be a very, 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 very rare 10-10 round. I'll start so falling asleep if you say that that fight again. I literally go face down on my keyboard, and it's not cool. It's the end of the interview. Laura, it is yeah. always a pleasure having you. You are absolutely awesome with your knowledge. Keep deep diving, and then, like, maybe answer my call sometime and come back on the show, and we'll discuss okay. it once again. Okay? okay. Laura Sanko, UFC broadcaster extraordinaire. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Inside the Green Room with three-time NBA champ Danny Green. Chris Paul is a nine-time defensive player. He's on an all-NBA defensive team. But I don't mind certain guys critiquing players. But when you're a role player, like Matt Barnes said, to disrespect a Hall of Famer is too far. Calling somebody a cone is disrespectful, bro. I don't care. You, you target and cone are two different, two different words, bro. Don't miss an episode of Inside the Green Room with Danny Green every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcast. Amin Alhassan from NBA Radio, Sirius XM. Welcome to Unlocking the Cage, my man. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. No problem at all, man. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your knowledge, man. So, before we get into the specific games happening right now, the specific series and how they are going, biggest surprise to you entering the play before the playoffs even started, entering the playoffs, who made it, who didn't, what was the biggest surprise to you of the year in the NBA? Oh, I mean, the biggest surprise, I guess, uh, by the time the playoffs started, it wasn't a surprise at all. But at the beginning of the season, if you had told me the Lakers not only aren't going to be a top four seed, not only they're not going to be a top six seed, they won't even qualify for the play-in. And it's not because LeBron got hurt on day one and missed the entire year. It's just because they're playing not good. I think uh, no matter how skeptical you were about that Westbrook deal, 
I don't think any of us could have imagined that the Lakers would finish outside the top 10 in a 15-team conference. That was truly staggering. Just ripped my heart out right in the beginning. That's cool. That's cool. Got it out of the way. You got out of the way, and I appreciate that. And I'm from Southern California. That hurts. But whatever. I, I, just, I walked into that. So the playoffs themselves, what has been the biggest story to you of the actual playoffs themselves in terms of surprises, things maybe you didn't expect? Well, I mean, I, I guess things I didn't expect. I would say I did not expect Luka Doncic and the Mavericks to make the leap that they made this year in terms of being a, a conference finalist. I would not have guessed that. Them beating the Phoenix Suns was a pretty big shock and a surprise. Uh, I, I just didn't see that in their evolution at this point. I kind of It's almost exactly like what happened with Atlanta last year, where we could look at their first-round yeah. matchup against the, uh, the Knicks and say, okay, I could see the Hawks beating them because it's the Knicks. Same thing this year with Dallas. Okay, it's the, Mav- the Jazz. They, they kind of have an uh, – a history of, of tripping over their own feet. But then you look at the second-round matchup. Last year was Philadelphia with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. This year uh, for the Dallas Mavericks, it was the Phoenix Suns with Devin Booker and Chris Paul. And you say, okay, congratulations on taking your next step in evolution, and maybe next year you might contend for a conference finals appearance, whatever. And instead they go out there, and in, in a game seven on the road, they beat the highly favorite, heavy favorite. Uh, opponent last year it was Philadelphia, as I said this year Phoenix. That was a shocker. I didn't, I did not imagine that happening. Even after the series started, remember they were down two zero and they kind of got their ass kicked in the first two games of that series. So for them to come back and win in seven, that would be the biggest shocker. Nationally, I think people seem to be surprised that Golden State is as good as they are. That's the part I wasn't surprised by. But I see people even before these conference finals started saying things like, oh, Lucas single-handedly going to do this, that, and the other. I said, have you forgotten what those three guys over there have accomplished over the last seven years? It feels like a lot of people have. Uh, speaking to Amin Alhassan, SXM NBA radio expert and host. So, any chance that the Mavericks get back into this series? Warriors are up 3-0. Uh, 3-0 comeback. Someday it might happen. Does it happen with Dallas? Yeah, I, I look. No, let me just get, cut this. Case. I was going to give a long. No, the answer is no. Uh, they might win, or they should win uh, Game Four tonight because you're fighting for your season. You're at home. You don't want to get swept. There's a pride issue there, and plus, teams that are up three zero typically tend to take the feet off the accelerator just a tad. So, I expect the Dallas to win the night, but no, I don't expect them to pull off the impossible. I think. For several reasons. Number one, Dallas is a very young, inexperienced team. They hadn't even won a playoff series until this year. And so this is kind of their first time at the rodeo, and part of that process is figuring out adversity and trying to find different ways. It doesn't typically come to the young and inexperienced in these situations. Number two, and this might be even more important than the first point, they're going against the Warriors. And you're not just going against a team of uh, veteran experience, championship experience, guys who've been through the wars and all that stuff. But more importantly, you're going up against a team that had probably one of the most embarrassing collapses in the history of basketball, being 73 wins and everyone's favorite team ever, the greatest team of all time, and you go into the finals and you have a 3-1 lead and all you got to do is win one. And two out of the last three games are at home. And they drop uh, 
three games in a row pretty much uh, and lose that series. That right there is as embarrassing as it gets. And I know the Jordan Pools and the Kumingas and, and, those, and the Wigginses of the world weren't there for that. But the main guys were Raymond, Clay Thompson, and, of course, Steph Curry and Steve Kerr as the head coach. They're never going to make that mistake again. Not without, like, dire circumstances like a massive injury or, or illness outbreak on a team. But if they're healthy and they're on the floor, you best believe they're going to step on throws because they know they've been burnt by this before. Uh, usually, when it comes to football, I'm a, I'm a, a big football fan, and, and, and I, I always check out the playoffs in football. Usually, veteran quarterback leadership is the difference between a Cinderella team that has a great record but doesn't do well in the playoffs. It's usually quarterback experience. What is the one thing, if you had to boil it down, that separates the wheat from the chaff in terms of the playoff team that makes a run to the finals and a team that's in the playoffs but not really a contender? What's the the the, the difference maker on the teams that do well, the teams like the Warriors right now, up 3-0 in the series? What is the difference maker on those teams, generally speaking? I would, I would say one word, execution, which is, I guess, mm. in some ways, goes back to what you said, like a quarterback experience. Experience isn't yeah, just experience for the sake of, right? You know, it's not just experience for the sake of experience, right? If it was experience for the sake of experience, they could say, look, Andrew Wiggins is an eight-year pro. Experience. He's played in the league forever. Otto Porter. He's a, uh, what is that? Uh, a, uh, a, he's a, a seven-year or nine-year pro. He's a nine-year pro. So, like, they've got guys who have experience. Bielitsa, he's been in the league a while. they got experience. But what we're really talking about when we say experience is like having to go in dire situations and circumstances. And if I tell you, you have 10 opportunities to do this, can you get it right nine out of 10 times, if not 10 out of 10 times? And the difference by and large comes down to you're, you're, you're going up against an opponent and you do it nine out of 10 times and they do it eight out of 10 times. That one difference right there. That's what the, the game is decided by, and indeed the series is decided by. It, talent, obviously, most of the time in our league. But when the talent isn't a huge talent gap, it's that ability to execute, 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 and that comes from experience. And so if you're looking at Dallas and Golden State, sure, Dallas has one great player. Golden State has, I would argue, three great players, right, even though Clay Thompson isn't quite the Clay Thompson that we remember from before he had all those horrible injuries. But the reality is, more than, oh, we've got a couple more stars than they do, it's their role players know how to do everything right. Their system, their cuts, their rotations, they're not making mistakes. And Dallas, by virtue of being young and experienced, are making mistakes, right? Things like, I'm guarding Steph Curry. He has the ball. He passed the ball to Draymond Green. Normally, you know, a normal defensive player would say, oh, thank God, the best player on the team passed the ball away. My work here is done. But if you're playing Golden State, you have to know, oh, no, this is the beginning because he's going to run around and relocate, and he's going to be wide open over there if you're not paying attention. Young teams tend to not pay attention. And so that, that difference between execution, knowing what the game plan is and sticking to those principles is oftentimes the biggest separator between success and failure. Uh, speaking, of course, to Amin Alhassan, SXM, NBA radio expert about the playoffs, my producer, Kelly Kell, 
a big Heat fan. She is not feeling good right now about her chances. Before we get into Celtics Heat, does she have any reason to be optimistic? Give Kelly some good news. Do you have any? Kelly, you are your favorite team. By the way, I'm in Miami right now. I don't know if you guys can hear the bass in the background because I'm, ca- I'm <laughs> calling you guys live from the Clevelander studio for the Dan Levitard show. And the studio is literally one floor above the bar at the Clevelander, which is a bleep show. If you've ever been here, you know what I'm talking about. I have uh, seen Kelly, it, yes. Kelly, I-, I would tell you this, Kelly. you got two things going for you. Number one, you're coached by one of the 15 best coaches in the history of basketball, and that's Eric Spolstra. And he is a master at adjustments, uh, particularly game-to-game adjustments. And we've seen that in this series where the Heat lose and they come back, they make the adjustments, and they come back and they win. And so I would say while game four was very disheartening, um, they made adjustments at halftime. The second half was a lot closer. I believe the Heat actually won the half. And they're going to make more adjustments before they play again tomorrow night here in Miami. The other thing I would say is the game changer for Boston. I know everyone thinks that Marcus Smart is the big tempo changer, game changer defensively for them. He's a good defensive player, but he is not making a dent on Jimmy Butler or the rest of those guys. The guy who makes the dent is Robert Williams. You see how they play when he's out there. You see how they play when he's not out there. Last night, he effectively erased everything Miami had going to the rim unequivocally. He had them out of bio, scared to even take shots. Williams got hurt last night. I don't know if you guys caught that. And so there's a chance that he's not going to be available tomorrow, and he may not be available for the rest of the series, depending on the severity of that injury. So if he's not out there, I don't have a lot of confidence in Boston's ability to stop the Miami Heat because we saw what happened to Jimmy Butler in the game uh, obviously when he didn't get hurt when Robert Williams didn't play, he was able to get to the front of the rim and get to the free throw line at will. And so those two things, I think the coaching is of Eric Spolstra and the questionable availability of one of Boston's most important players uh, changes the dynamics there. Uh, not just these playoffs, of course, not just the two semifinals we're talking about. Let's talk about legacy for Steph Curry. Getting to the finals – uh, maybe maybe winning it, hopefully winning it, another title. Let's say he's MVP. Legacy-wise, where does that put him, and how much does he need another uh, another ring to solidify his legacy in the NBA? I mean, he made the top 76 players of all time, right? So, like, on some yep. level, legacy's set. He's all right. You know, he's fine. In terms of how can he push it higher and further, Obviously, another championship, particularly a non-Durant championship, because for some reason people seem to forget 2015, but a non-Durant championship pushes that uh, a little bit further. And I think uh, him not having a finals MVP on his resume, while I don't find that to be a breaker, obviously having one of those changes how people look at you and remembering your history. Uh, Again, just to clarify Steph Curry didn't have to do anything for his, his legacy. He's fine. He's, again, top 75 of all time, or 76, excuse me, because that stupid voting that they had where somebody tied or whatever. But if you want to get up to, like, the top 10, I think this is pretty big for him to not only get another championship, but to be recognized with a finals MVP for his efforts. Uh, in that regard, is it beyond 
titles? Is it beyond points? Is it the impact he had on the game? Can you think of someone in their respective era who changed the game more than Steph Curry? The way every team plays the game in this era has been influenced by Steph Curry. Uh, can you think of other examples like that? Uh, it's funny. I, I recorded a podcast earlier today. Uh, it's called Basketball Illuminati. I do it with Tom Habistro for the Levitard Show Network. Uh, it's available wherever you get podcasts. And uh, the episode drops tomorrow, but we talked about the concept of Jordanism, like a religion, yeah. uh, and the belief that one guy can single-handedly do it all. It's the reason why many people who should know better pick Dallas to win the Western Conference Finals, because they thought that Luka Doncic was so transcendent as an individual, he would lift up uh, these collection of guys and go on and march on to a title. And I think Michael Jordan, uh, in that regard, had changed the way people looked at basketball from a collection of talent cooperating to, no, 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 one star player does it all, and the rest of us are the Jordanaires, and we just carry his water. And it really changes the way people look at basketball without even uh, thinking about Michael Jordan specifically. They just think, oh, this team has the best player. They're going to win. And that's not the case. So I, I, Michael Jordan, I think, is the uh, guy who I would point to as far as transformative in that way, in, in, in the sense of changing the way we even watch basketball. Uh, do you think that's a disservice to basketball? Because I hear that all the time. And, and the, the way it's, it's, it's explained to me and the way it's mathematically been presented to me is there are certain sports where you can tell how good a team is by looking at the worst player. And the team that has the best worst player is better. Uh, soccer's that way, right? The collective team itself, look at the worst player. Who has the best worst player, that team wins. Other sports, look at the best player, the best best player, and that team wins. People see basketball as a best best player kind of sport. You think that does a disservice to basketball, what you're talking about? Uh, it, it does on some level uh, in the sense that I think people minimize the contribution of yeah. the collective. Again, think about a team like, like the Celtics, right, where Jason Tatum is awesome. And no one's, not, no one's denying that. He is their best player. He's awesome. But I just got done telling you that they're a completely different team when Robert Williams III is out there. Now, I'm not, a, 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 like, living in a bubble. I know if we walk out on the street and pull even people who are basketball fans, who self-proclaimed basketball fans, I said, hey, look at this picture right here of Robert Williams III. Who is that? I wouldn't know who he was. Couldn't pick him up out of the lineup. But I'm telling you, he is absolutely pivotal to everything they do defensively. And their hopes of winning a championship hinge on whether that guy is available or not available, right? That's not a knock on Tatum. He's not better than Tatum. He's not more important than Tatum. But he is important and a, a, a crucial part of it. The irony, of course, about the whole Michael Jordan thing is that I don't think Jordan thought of himself as the guy who's just going to do it all by himself. He understood and recognized the need for teammates, good teammates who could do their job and recognize the importance of the job that they did. But it's like one of those things where it's like the religion gets out of hand, man. Like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus probably didn't think people would be killing each other in his name, but that's how religion goes, right? There's a dogmatism that goes with that. And so, yeah, we do do ourselves a disservice when we try to boil everything down to who the best guy is, uh, when even the best guys know that's not how this thing works. 
Uh, I appreciate, man, your time. I know it's a busy season for you. Appreciate you making the time. Amin Al Hassan, SXM NBA radio host. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. And SiriusXM Fight Nation Program Director, Marissa Rivas. Sirius XM Podcasts.